I spent the last three years learning from some of the most ingenious mergers and acquisition specialists around. And now I've decided to take the leap into buying businesses. The real questions are how will I do it? How much of the behind the scenes can we really show? And how can business owners like you maximize their purchase price and build generational wealth? This show is going to give you the answers. Join me and follow along as I share mine and other stories as we buy, sell, or merge healthcare businesses and physical therapy practices. I'm Dave Kittle, and this is The Dave Kittle Show. Welcome back to The Dave Kittle Show. Dave Kittle here, owner of Concierge Pain Relief Home Physical Therapy in New York City and the CEO of the Fieldmaker Group, currently speaking with practice owners about partnering or acquiring some or all their practice. And today we have a guest on the show, Mark Moraz. He is a certified value builder advisor, and you can find out more about him at crossingthegoalpartners.com. Mark, how are we doing? Good, thanks. How are you, Dave? I'm feeling great. Let's get into it. So today we're talking about the eight key drivers to consider to build, accelerate, and realize the value of a successful business. Obviously, we're curtailing this more towards healthcare and physical therapy businesses, but you have a lot of experience in working with a lot of different business owners. So let's get into those eight. But before we do, quick little bio, catch the audience up in regards to who you are, who you help, and then we'll get into those eight key drivers. Yeah. So um, so I started my business about seven or eight years ago. What I saw was that business owners were getting a lot of help at the beginning of their journey, right? Marketing, sales, but I didn't see too many people helping business owners at the end of their journey. And I started my business because I saw my father successfully sell his business. He was able to put enough money aside so that when he passed away, that my mother doesn't have to worry about working again. She still lives in the same house that they did. So it's really about creating legacy wealth. That's really what got me into my business. Excellent. And for anyone that's watching or listening, you help business owners get ready to sell. You're not a broker advisor on actually exiting and selling, but you're helping them in what? The the one or two or the three to five years leading up to a potential exit? Exactly. So I'm not a transaction guy, right? I work with people that do transactions, but I really do coaching, consulting work to help business owners get ready to sell their business. Because what I find is lots of business owners, they put so much sweat, equity, time, money, effort. Maybe it's their kid's college fund. Maybe they went to friends and family for funding to build this business. And after 10, 20, 30 years of all this effort they put in, they might go to a broker and the broker will tell them, hey, I can't sell your business the way it is today. So what I need to do is help the business owner before they go to the broker. And we know that process usually takes a couple of years. And uh, somebody that wants to buy your business is going to look at the last three to five years of revenue. So they're going to look at all your financial statements for the last three to five years. So really, three to five year time frame is best. Those are the great people that are getting ready to get ready to sell their business. Excellent. So let's get into the eight key drivers for practice owners, business owners out there in order to build, accelerate, and realize the value of their successful practice. So what's number one? So number one is financial performance, right? So how is your business performing financially, right? Are you actually making a profit? The big thing is, are you as the owner taking a salary? Um, That's the big first piece of financial performance. The other second piece of financial performance is really how clean are your books, right? So have you gotten audit done on your books? Are you, do you, you know, do you have, keep your personal, personal finances and business finances separate? Do you have, you know, is it professionalized books? That's financial performance. Okay. And so, if someone, let's say if they're listening, they're around a million in revenue or in the one to five million range, they probably have a bookkeeper, an accountant. Maybe they have, they probably, if they're over a million or two, they probably have 
an accountant, accountancy or a firm that's actually helping them with the books. Any tips or advice for someone who's maybe before that, like advice that you have, like if you don't have a bookkeeper, you should probably get one. Obviously, this is not legal advice, it's not tax advice, but any other tips or tricks for folks that are like on the fence there? Yeah. So what I would recommend is that people are speaking to their CPA, whoever is doing their tax planning for them in terms of the business in the future, really talk to that person about what your intentions are for the next year to five years. Because we know that CPA, when you go to CPA, their default strategy is to really save you on your tax bill to the government. What they end up doing is they end up reducing your revenue and that way you can pay less taxes, right? So if you're speaking to your CPA advisor, you want, you know, you want to tell them, Hey, listen, I want to sell my business in the next three to five years. What they should then do is kind of figure out how do we maximize the revenue in your business, right? Because you want to be able to show a potential buyer that, you know, you've got good revenue, increasing revenue from year to year, right? So if you're reducing revenue, that's not going to look good for a buyer. For sure. And at the same time, showing some amount of profit that's taxable, even though you're going to be taxed on that. I mean, we've, we've seen a ton of things. We've seen, you know, five or 10 grand being declared as net income for many different practices, not going to mention any names, but, you know, in the million dollar range of revenue, but they're declaring five or 10 grand as, as net income. So we understand some of the, you know, legal loopholes with deductions and write-offs and all that, right? Yep. Okay. So number two. So number two is growth potential, right? So how much market is still available to the buyer? So if you're selling your business and, you know, normally you would think if I've got 90% market share, that's good for me as the owner because lots of people are buying my product or service. But for a buyer, that doesn't get, doesn't give them much uproom, right? So you really want to think about when you're selling your business in terms of your growth potential for a future buyer. So this is kind of why I talk about you're not selling your business, you're making your business viable to a future owner because they're investing in the future of your business, right? They don't care about the past so much as they care about the future of, you know, what they're going to get out of the business from after they buy it from you. So you want to make sure there's room for room for growth. So growth potential is the uh, second driver. Got it. Now, when I hear that, so like with physical therapy, with healthcare practices, there's a lot of saturation. And some of these corporates that are, you know, regional or even national, they're still popping up new locations. So not just not acquiring some of the independents, but even the corporates that have 25, 50, 100 locations, different groups on the East Coast, at least, are still opening up new locations. So there's just a ton of competition out there. And there's minimal saturation in regards to the current outreach or the the current availability of some of these practices that we're speaking with. So I don't know with your clients, with your your clients that you've worked with, I'm not sure if that is something either maybe not relevant for this conversation or something that is less of a value driver than some of the others here on this uh, number eight list. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it could be less important. But yeah, I mean, what we talk about in terms of growth potential is we're looking at, you know, what are the things that you can sell in a new region to a new client base? So, I mean, like you said, if they're pretty saturated already, or if you've got practices up and down the East Coast and, you know, everything's already filled, I'm not sure there's much room for geographic growth, right? But can you start marketing to a different client base, right? I mean, is there somebody else that might be able to use your physical therapy services? There you go. So I like that because we're going to get into some other things later in regards to, you know, like recurring revenue, we're going to get into that. But that's one thing advertising or reaching out to other communities or other groups of folks, other groups of athletes or other individuals that are not using 
the healthcare services or the physical therapy services that you could actually be marketing to would actually be another key driver that could be revenue growth, that could be profit growth and expand the offerings of a practice of a healthcare business that maybe you didn't consider three, five, 10 years ago when there was, you know, just there wasn't demand for certain things like paying out of pocket for wellness services or things like that. So cool. Makes sense. So the third driver is what we call Switzerland structure. I mean, it's kind of a silly name, but really what it represents is independence, right? So like the country of Switzerland is just an independent country. They didn't get into all the world wars until they were forced to. So Switzerland structure is about making sure your business is not overly dependent on a single employee, a single customer, or a single vendor, right? So it's, you know, if you can imagine if your business is dependent on a single employee, that employee leaves, then that could they could take business with them. They could, you know, really hurt your business, right? So you're adding risk by having an employee that just kind of owns everything in their head. So we talk also about in terms of customers, right? Making sure you've got diversification for cut diversification of customers. Because you can imagine if you had one customer that was generating 50% of your revenue, that customer decided to go somewhere else, then you got a problem, right? And suppliers also. And when I talk about suppliers, I use like the example of a florist. So if you're a florist and maybe you buy all of your flowers from a single farm and that farm has like a freeze or something like that, and they can't supply you flowers anymore, then you're in trouble, right? So diversifying your vendors. But when I talk about vendors also, I talk about vendors in terms of, you know, who you do your marketing through, right? It's not necessarily who you're purchasing product from, but who you're doing marketing to, right? So if you're really dependent on, let's say, Facebook, LinkedIn for marketing, you know, if you're at social media ad buy, and then they change the algorithm or they change the pricing, that could be really impacting to your business too, right? So it's all about diversification, making sure you're not over reliant on any one area. Yeah. So with physical therapy and healthcare, there's, I've spoken with different brokers and advisors. I've spoken with some dentists who are buying practices. And one of the things that they try to stay away from are unfortunately practices that have a heavy government subsidized or government payer mix. So for example, they, you know, you don't want to necessarily acquire a practice that has 40% of patients of the Medicaid population, because maybe it in physical therapy or in dentistry, it reimburses lower. Now it's terrible. And those Those people in the community need that care. They need the physical therapy or they need the dentistry. But those are some things that the buyers and the brokers advisors are talking about out there. So when we're looking at practices, we're looking at what is the percentage of payers. So, you know, Medicare might be 30% of their their reimbursing payers or the commercial insurance might be 70 or 80%. And then they might have 10% as private pay out of pocket. So definitely diversifying your payers would certainly benefit you and decrease risk as a practice owner out there. Yep. Awesome. So next so one. After Swiss, next one is what we call valuation teeter-totter. So I grew up calling it a seesaw, but valuation teeter-totter is really about cash flow. So how fast is money coming in versus going out of the business? So when somebody wants to buy your business, they write two checks is what we talk about, right? So they write a check to you for the business, and then they actually write a check for operating operating expenses, right? So what they need to put into the business after you leave to keep the business running. So making sure that, you know, you've got good cash flow, money coming in faster than it's going out. That's one of the things we work on. Just to make sure you have a high positive cash flow. Yeah. So working capital is, is super important. And kind of for us on the, the buy side, evaluating practices, looking at their, uh, their AR, their accounts receivable and their AP accounts payable and seeing, you know, what 
percentage of their AR is, you know, over 30, 60, 90, or even some cases over 120 days. And you and I both know, like the further it gets out, like the less likely is wherever either us or the current practice owner or business owner is ever going to realize that income, that money, the further, you know, you get away from it. So working capital, certainly helpful. And that I do like you bringing up that with the two checks. So, you know, we're going to pay X at the close or X for the business. Uh, but then there is another time, money and effort component of either the working capital funding, you know, to fill a gap between when a new buyer is taking over and the old buyers transitioning out or, you know, changing bank accounts or whatever, and making sure that there is some capital there for rent, utilities, yeah. payroll, all the things without disrupting the course of business, because you don't want your employees in that transition to get nervous or, you know, someone's payroll check bounces or they don't get their money directly into their account, things like that, right? Yeah, I mean, that's a big challenge, right? Your employees, especially during a transition, everybody's a little bit nervous. They're not sure what's going to happen with their job. And if you have like a hiccup like that, you can't make a payroll. And that just sends even more bad vibes out to your staff. So you really want to make sure you're continuing continuity of operations. For sure. All right. So that kind of leads into the next one. Um, it relates to the next one, which is recurring revenue. So we, what we talk about is, you know, how do you create some sort of recurring revenue revenue model in your business, whether it's membership, subscription. Most people think of like recurring revenue in terms of um, like a magazine subscription or an online subscription to, uh, you know, some sort of online service, some sort of SaaS platform. And that really helps your, your cash flow also because you get paid the full amount, let's say, at the beginning of the month. And now you've got all of that money to work with over the course of the month. So you can fund, you can pre-fund your staff, you know, any advertising you need to do. And it also reduces the amount of effort and stress in finding new clients, right? Because you've got people on some sort of subscription. Yeah. So have you, we didn't talk about this in the pre-interview. Have you ever had physical therapy, Mark? Have you ever had any injuries, back pain, like where you went and saw a physical therapist ever or no? We didn't, we didn't cover this earlier. Yeah, I did. I had a, I mean, this was interesting too. I talk about this, right? I mean, in terms of not knowing what's going to happen in your future, about, uh, what is it, about three years ago, maybe two or three years ago now, I had a stroke. So I, you know, I couldn't go to work. So, I mean, that's a perfect example of you don't know what's going to happen in your future. So you really need to make sure your business is ready for your exit, whether you're ready for your exit or not, right? I mean, so yeah, so I, after my stroke, I had to go to physical therapy. Got it. And I'm assuming it was mostly or some amount through insurance or was it all just out of pocket private pay? Um, I think there was a portion that was um uh, was insurance, but yeah, I would say a portion of it was insurance, not a hundred percent. Got it. So the the reason why I'm asking some of these questions is because any owner, any practice owner in healthcare or physical therapy that's watching or listening, most are either doing through in-network insurance, maybe out-of-network insurance, and then some small percentage are doing some private pay component. Everyone knows that's watching or listening that a lot of the in-network and then even the out-of-network, some of them, they'll be capped or a lot of them will be capped with visits. So this plan might only have 20 visits per calendar year. Great plans might have 90 or 100 visits per calendar year. Now, if you have a stroke though, that now you, I didn't even notice and you have no speech issues or any, you know, anything that's visual in terms of changes. So that's great. You had a great outcome, but other people are not so lucky. And someone who has a stroke might have some impairments, whether mobility impairments, speech, whatever might be movement impairments for years or maybe the rest of their life. So 
what would be some ways for practice owners watching or listening? How could they, whether they have an orthopedic population like back pain, knee pain, shoulder pain, headaches, whatever, or on the neurological side, Parkinson's disease, multiple sclerosis, stroke, spinal cord injury, something like neuropathy, whatever it might be. There are some PTs and, and some healthcare providers out there that have done things like this. But do you have any tips or advice for a practice owner watching or listening that has one or two of those types of populations and maybe they use up all their insurance benefits and it's, you know, right now it's March, but let's say by June or July, they use up all their insurance benefits. Insurance no longer pays for any of their physical therapy visits, but they clinically or medically still need the visits and the physician can write them a prescription or a referral for physical therapy, but it doesn't matter because the insurance controls the visits. So right there, I'm trying to, I'm trying to, you know, prop this up for you. So how could uh, owners watching or listening build some type of a recurring offer for someone in your type of situation or a patient in one of those situations and then, and present it as a potential offer for recurring? Ah, that's a good question. Um, I'm just wondering if there's like some sort of educational program they could offer, you know, now with technology, everybody's used to doing Zoom and online learning kind of stuff. So is there some sort of membership, you know, class that they could offer on a recurring basis? You know, maybe it's, um, maybe there's an opportunity to do some sort of physical therapy kind of instruction over the internet, right? Via Zoom or something like that, right? I mean, just, you know, rather than having to go to the office for multiple visits ongoing, right? Maybe you can show people what they need to do at home, right? Rather than having to pay thousands of dollars for an in-person visit that the insurance covers, they can, you know, maybe it's a smaller fee for ongoing kind of, you know, a membership in some sort of educational program. Yeah, that's a great idea. And I don't, I don't mean to put you on the hot seat. We didn't prepare for this. So I, I appreciate you rolling with me. So another way would be, let's say, cause in, so I'm in Brooklyn, I'm in New York city, it, you know, things are more expensive here, but there'll be other places across the country. Maybe they charge hundred dollars per visit. Some places charge two or $300 per visit. Now, if you had, the stroke that we were talking about, your insurance visits get exhausted, then the therapy office could say, hey, well, you still need hands-on care. You have range of motion limitations. You have movement impairments. You want to work on your walking. Maybe someone has dropped foot with the stroke or they have some other you know, movement issue. And you could offer them some dollar amount for a monthly membership for hands-on physical therapy. And then you could also have another tier where it's less expensive and maybe it's in small groups. So it would be like four or five clients that have had a stroke that are doing some, you know, similar routines or maybe some similar hands-on techniques with a physical therapist, but is kind of subsidized in a, in a semi-private group. And I'm just, I'm just rolling off the cuff with this as an example, <laughs> but that would be something where they would have your credit card on file. It's a monthly recurring membership for care. And then maybe you go back to using your insurance next year at, you know, January 1st when your insurance resets. But that would be another way that a physical therapy office could have some monthly recurring income. And they're providing, you know, maybe a couple of different offers. One offer is, you know, Mark, we're going to work one-on-one with you. You come in for a 30-minute visit or an hour visit and it costs this, or it's a little less expensive and it's a 30 or 60-minute visit, but it's with four or five other individuals you know, around your age, or they all had a similar stroke or stroke effects. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a good idea because people are looking for community, right? If I'm, that's why they've got like group fitness classes, right? People like to yep, get together yep. in a, you know, soul cycle, right? I guess that's a big one in New York. I mean, people do like to do that kind of stuff as a group, right? And if they have a problem, they have, you know, they kind of have a 
someone that they can turn to, like they make relationships with the other people in the class. So I like that idea. That's a good idea. And I, I do want to say, so we, over the years, we've had, we don't have anything with our practice, with our home visits or concierge visits. We don't have anything that's monthly recurring, but we have had patients because we pretty much use everyone's credit or debit card, like on file. So we're not taking checks. We're not really taking cash. Sometimes we'll do Venmo or Zelle will accept it, but it just, it's something, some other channel for us to check and have to deal with. So most of the time it's credit card or debit card. And we have had patients or clients over the years say, you know, you guys are really smart to have our cards on or my card on file because it kind of feels like Uber. It feels like it's free. Like, I feel like, you know, like I'm not pulling my wallet out and paying you guys uh, physically (laughs) with cash. So it almost feels free. And I don't know if that, is that ever something that has come up with the way that you've helped business owners with the monthly recurring membership? I mean, obviously the the practice, the business has to be delivering value, but in terms of the the customer or client experience, is that ever part of it? Yeah, you're reducing the friction, right? I mean, you're reducing one step that the person has to take. And and what is, they, they say with marketing, I'm not a marketing guy, but I, I, you know, I've read some stuff. But you know, if you if somebody's a client of yours already, there's a higher likelihood they'll be a client of you in the future, right? I mean, so let's say they have another accident. They already know who you are. You already have their information on file. You know, they can come back. They're more ready to come back to you than they would be to go to somebody else. And yeah, so I guess that's it, right? I mean, it just reduces the friction, makes it easier for you, the business owner, and for the customer, the client. And if you reduce friction, then you're improving the patient or the client experience. And you, you we also make it easier for them to do business with us, to, to work with us or collaborate with us. To, so we're delivering the value and they are paying us, you know, whatever the fee is for that value. Exactly. And then you can start to think about are there other services you can offer? I mean, I know you do physical therapy, but are there products you can sell or are there other other programs you can offer? And then you can start to upsell people in other directions. So yeah, and, and just you've got their information already. It just makes it so much easier to market to them, to sell to them, all those things. Yeah, awesome. Great. So that was recurring revenue, monthly recurring. So what would be next on this list? So the next one is monopoly control. It's about how you differentiate yourself from other from your competition. So the idea of the term monopoly control comes from Warren Buffett, who talked about creating a deep and wide moat. So if you think about back to the medieval times, you know, castles, they had a moat around them to keep the, you know, the invaders away, right? So if you can, if you can build a deep and wide moat around your business, it just basically makes it more difficult for people to enter your market. Yeah. What do you, how do you differentiate yourself? How do you explain to people what you do is, valuable to them and that nobody else can do it. So do you have a specific technique or are you licensed to do a specific, you know, do you have a specific piece of equipment that other people don't have? I love it. And let me jump in here because we've had Tony Maritato a bunch of times on the podcast. So he's a practice owner in Ohio. He's got two brick and mortar offices. He also does a whole bunch of online stuff, really smart guy. But the one thing that he mentioned about having a moat in your physical therapy practice, one, if you're a brick and mortar office, it's location, it's simple, easy parking. It's the ability to find the office from the street, like not going into a medical pavilion and like not knowing where to go. And like you get frustrated and you're like, oh, this is annoying. And like, all right, if I find the office, I guess I'm here now. But like it just rattles some people. And so Tony was like, you got to have a moat. You got to have some of these components of a moat. So location, like in real estate, location, location, location. 
you know, simple, easy parking. You got to make it easy for people to find your office so that they can come in, get their, get their physical therapy, get their hands-on treatment, get, you know, work on their balance with your physical therapist, whatever it might be. Those are some of the big things that he's mentioned before. Anything else jump out at you in regards to other components of a moat, if it's a a brick and mortar physical therapy office, or even if it's, you know, another thing would be the home physical therapy, like we provide where we go to our patients or clients, which is just the convenience. So that for us, like convenience is part of our moat. Yeah, I think that would be a good example, right? I mean, find out what problems your client or customer might have that other people aren't addressing, right? So maybe it's home visits. Maybe you help them fill out all the paperwork they need to get filled out to get reimbursed or to get their Medicare, Medicaid taken care of. Um, you know, just making it easier again, going back to the friction, right? I mean, if you can reduce the friction and that, that could be a good moat for you also, right? I mean, you're just doing something that other practices aren't doing to make it easier for customers. You're appealing to them for a problem, solving a problem they have and you're creating that moat for yourself. Yeah. And do you think sometimes just like client experience, customer experience? is part of a moat. Like what, and I ask that because most practices will take care of the billing. They'll have either in-house billing people or they will outsource their billing. But if you have Medicare, if you have Medicaid, whatever it might be that you don't, you can't bill that on your own, the patient, like, so they, the practice will always handle it. But then there's other practices that have been on the show where they'll, you know, they'll have someone that maybe is not tech savvy as a new patient that comes in and the front desk person gets up from the their front desk chair, goes to the lobby, helps them with the paperwork. Little things like that. Do you ever see or 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 think that that would be like the patient customer experience side of things in regards to, like you said, it's kind of reducing friction, it's improving the experience, it's making things a little more seamless? I mean, I think it's as good, it's it's good for as long as nobody else is doing it, right? I mean, it's, I mean, we talk about you know customer service is not a deep and wide moat because everybody will say, hey, yeah. we've got better customer service. So you have to really do something other people aren't doing, right? I mean, maybe you have day, child daycare in your facility, right? People that come with their kids because you know, they couldn't get them out of school or something like that. They, you had to take them out of school. You, got, you know, they had to you know, go to physical therapy and they have nothing to do with their kids. If you maybe have like a, like a, a little area for the kids, like a babysitter kind of service while yeah. they're in physical therapy. So that's a, that's a great idea because a lot of the bigger gyms, like the LA fitnesses of the world will have like a little, maybe not at every location, but the the location I used to go to in New Jersey would have like a a kid's like gym area. And there would be an adult that was trained and they're like watching the kids and it could be just, they're watching one kid or they're watching, you know, five or 10 kids at once, but then the parent could then go exercise as long as they want, get their exercise in, but not have to have their kid running around the gym, getting hurt with weights or something like that. So that's a great idea for physical therapy offices. Yep. Excellent. Yeah, so, again, if there's a piece of, go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say, if there's like a piece of equipment that you have that nobody else has, I mean, I can imagine, you know, if you have, let's say a, um, like aqua aerobics kind of thing, right? Maybe you have a pool and you offer some specific physical therapy in a pool that other practices in the area don't have. That could be also a, a moat. Got it. So another thing would be the Alter G. Do you ever hear of this Alter G treadmill that you put like a, it almost bubbles up. You put on like a, a zipper waistband and it reduces the amount of weight that you're running. So you're running on a treadmill, but it looks like this NASA bubble around the treadmill. It's a fairly expensive piece of machinery and not a lot of physical therapy offices have it. The ones that do are catering towards runners and, and folks that want to be able to run but if they have pain with running, then this big bubble fills up with, you know, air. It like decompresses their their weight bearing joints and then they can actually run at, you know, 
40 or 30% or 50% of their weight bearing so they can actually exercise and move, but with less pain or they can, you know, progressively load their joints over time and get better. And it's part of recovery. That's something that I've seen a lot of physical therapy offices will advertise as like a, one of their components of, of a moat. Yeah, that could be it. That's good. I've never heard of that before. I like that. I want one. <laughs> there you go. Several thousand dollars, but I mean, I'm sure you'd be able to get one. Where there, there, you know what? Here, here's the thing. You can go on Google. You're in Las Vegas, and just Google, you know, physical therapy alter G, and then you'll see that that'll be a moat component of some of those offices. But not every office will have one. But the ones that mm-hmm. do will definitely want to promote it, and you'll probably get you know targeted with some Google ads or Facebook ads. <laughs> cool. All right. Thanks. So the next one I've got here after monopoly control is customer satisfaction, which is pretty self-explanatory. Uh, you know, customer satisfaction. We use a tool called Net Promoter Score. So I don't know if, you know, if you're familiar with Net Promoter Score. Basically, yep. you're asking your clients, would you refer our business to a friend or relative or colleague, right? I mean, how, how referable is your business is really what it gets down to. Because it's been proven by the folks that do these statistics that if your business is referable by cl- past clients, then there's a greater probability you'll have, you know, growing revenue, right? People that refer you, they'll come back to you and they'll bring people with them, right? You, or they'll... For the audience, I mean, I think a lot of people know NPS, but can you describe, so it's it's like, how likely are you to refer us to a family or friend? And it's like a scale from zero to 10 or one to 10. And it's like, it's excluding yeah. six and seven or seven or eight, something like that. Yeah. So basically it's broken down. Like you said, it's zero to 10 or maybe one to 10. I can't remember exactly which one, but nine and 10 are considered promoters. So if somebody gives you a nine or a 10, they're promoters, seven and eight are neutral. And then six and below are detractors, right? So anybody that scores, you know, six or below, they're people that are, maybe they're not talking badly about you, but they're just not promoting your business. So basically what you do is you take how many promoters there were, and let's say you surveyed a hundred people, Let's say 50 of them were promoters. And then you take the number of people that were maybe neutrals, like the sevens and eights. You discount them because they're not doing anything. And then you take the detractors, the zero through six. Let's say that's 25 of the 100 people. So now you take your net promoter score is your promoters, 50, minus your detractors, 25. That would give you a net promoter score of 25, right? I mean, it's just the net of your promoters minus your detractors. Excellent. So thank you for that. In regards to customer satisfaction, do you think that it's kind of like we were talking about earlier, like almost like table stakes and, you know, yes, it's important to measure it, but it's not necessarily a moat or how do you kind of factor this into these eight components as like value drivers? Because it's an indicator of future potential. I mean, I think that you're communicating to a potential buyer that, hey, listen, the way we do things, people like it, right? I mean, we have employees that our clients like, we have equipment that our clients like, we have procedures that our clients like. So there's a likelihood that they're going to refer us to a few people in the future, right? So it might not be uh, related to a deep and wide moat monopoly control, but it's a real indicator for the potential buyer to say, to basically, you know, see that there's potential for this business in the future because people are promoting this business. Yeah. And I do you think it makes the most sense for businesses to send this out over, I mean, I, I've received it as an email from a bunch of different brands and companies, you know, like airlines after you fly with them or, you know, a hotel after you stay with them, things like that. So for a healthcare business owner that's watching or listening, 
like maybe emailing it out to their, you know, recently discharged patients or clients or, or clients that are currently coming to their office or currently engaging, or maybe that you could set it up with, it sends out to patients after they've been with you for a month or two months. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, usually what I recommend is somebody that's about 75% of their way through their engagement with you, right? So let's say they've got a 10 visit, maybe on the 6th, the 7th, maybe 8th visit, you send that to them. Because then once you get the results, you can start to actually make corrections before it's done, right? I mean, you can address the issues that they're communicating to you. And maybe not on a one-to-one basis, but if you're seeing uh, you know, a lot of people saying the same things, you know there's an issue there. So yeah, the, the key is that these NEP promoter scores are supposed to be a single question or two questions, really, right? Score from zero to 10, and then why did you score the way you did, right? I mean, it's, most surveys that you see you know, are people like, you know, how was our food? You know, was it hot? Was it cold? That kind of stuff. Those are more anecdotal, right? So they're not statistically proven as NEP promoter score is. So what we do is we use the NEP promoter score about 75% away through the engagement, and that's where we find the most help because then I can make some adjustments. Got it. I have heard of practice owners sending it out after the second or third visit, because if, if the patient scores a six or something, then they will contact the patient immediately. The owner will call or the manager or the clinic director might call to schedule a call or just call that patient directly and try to make corrections as opposed to waiting 75% into the plan of care. They're doing it almost like the, the first 25% of the potential plan of sure. care if it's going to be 10 or 15 visits. I, I think it just depends on, you know, the owner, the patients, but, you know, in some cases it might be too early, but in some cases you could probably recover a situation or improve a situation before it sours or goes too far bad. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I mean, that was one of the things that I learned when I was working in hotels and restaurants a long time ago, right? It's, it's your recovery, right? How do you correct the mistake that really adds value to your customer? It demonstrates that you really care about them. So I guess the key is whether it's two or three or seven or eight times, the key is to get the feedback when they've experienced you experienced your service long enough that they can make a decision, but still have enough time for you to correct it and make some take some action on their input. And so they can see that, hey, this person really is listening to what I'm saying. Excellent. So the customer satisfaction, what number was that? I've lost count. What number were we up to? That was eight. So our last one is hub and spoke. Um, it's really talked about how dependent is the business on the business owner, right? So you can imagine, I think the example that we use is like an airline example, right? So if all the airplanes are flying into a hub, if that hub breaks down, then the whole system breaks down. So it's the same thing for the business, right? If you, the owner, are the hub of the business, and if something happens to you or you want to go on vacation, the whole system breaks down. The whole business falls apart, right? So are your employees coming to you with questions and concerns and problems? Or are you empowering your employees to make decisions? Are you uh, giving them the authority? Are you delegating systems and processes to them so they can make sure the business operates without depending on you, right? So the second second piece of that is, are your customers coming to you with all your with all their complaints? Or do you have a service department that that can actually work with the customers to resolve the complaints, right? And um, the third is your vendors, right? So if you're the hub and all the vendors are coming to you for, you know, payment, signing invoices, approving contracts, that, you know, and you can't do that anymore because you're out of the business, it, you know, it becomes difficult. And the way I like to say it is that 
if you want to sell your business, the business needs to be independent of you. And because the buyer does not want to buy your job, right? They want to buy your business. So if you're the guy that's doing or the gal that's doing everything in, in the business, not only are you feeling stress on yourself, but nobody's going to want to buy your job. For sure. So that that's one component that we've discussed a lot on this show, which is having practice owners kind of delegate, get out of a lot of the roles and responsibilities. The more that they can delegate, uh, the easier it is for them to potentially transition out. And there are some practice owners that are that we've spoken with to potentially partner with or, or acquire where they're treating 30 or 40 hours a week. They're treating patients 30 or 40 hours or more per week, and that's fine. And then there's others that are like absentee owners and they're already completely out of the day to day. And they have some other person that they've groomed that they've trained to manage the front desk side of things on the front desk, the scheduling, the phone calls, the admin, the billing, all that, or also over the therapeutic side, the actual delivery of care side, the therapist, all of that. So obviously it makes it a lot easier for practice owners in that situation to transition out. The challenge that we see is that the practice owners that are treating 40 or 50 hours per week, and then they want to sell their practice. And at the same time, they say that they want to treat less or not treat any patients at all. But then the buyers like us are like, well, but we would have to replace the revenue that you've been generating on a calendar year. So either we have to put that into the offer as a potential lower offer, or there has to be, you know, we have to make up that revenue some way, either with hiring, with recruiting more talent, or kind of factoring that into some transition plan. Yep, that's exactly right. Excellent. So we went over the eight. Any final recap, final thoughts in regards to some of these eight key drivers for practice owners to build, accelerate the value of a successful practice? So uh, maybe it goes back to one of the first things you talked about, right? It's start early, right? I mean, don't wait until you're ready to sell your business to start thinking about these things. Because some of these things take a while to get in place, get the gears going. So if you, the business owner, want to step away from the business, you need to be able to delegate, need to be able to define your standard operating procedures. How do you deliver service? How do you take care of a client and a customer? So, you know, making sure you document those, that takes time itself. And then training your team to do that, that takes time. So I guess my last point is just make sure you start early. So I work with some business owners. They start right after they start their business, they're starting to think about the exit of their business, right? So we talk about if you're building your business plan, part of your business plan should include what your exit is, right? Because you as the investor in this business, right, whether it's money, time, or whatever it is, you're going to want to eventually get your get a return on that investment, right? So part of your business plan should include how am I going to get a return on my investment? And if you have investors early on, they're going to want to do the same thing. How are they going to get their money out? So your business plan, you know, you could start as early as creating your business plan, I guess is my point. Yeah. And and if you've been in business for 10, 15, 20 years and you haven't thought about that, that's okay. It's like you could start today. You could start today with getting yourself out of the roles and responsibilities, getting yourself out of the day-to-day, delegating, offloading a lot of your responsibilities. And you could work with someone like Mark and kind of learn the processes of some of these value drivers. And he could potentially coach you, help you along the way to get out of those roles so that then you could have an easier transition. You have more leverage, you have more options. You could continue to keep the business if you wanted to, or you could sell it, but you don't have to wait until there's some medical issue or some life event where you're kind of like forced to sell, which is like the toughest point. Yeah. Cause then you've got no negotiating leverage. I mean, at that point, you're just not, you know, you've got other things on your mind. What I find is it's not always about the business owner that gets, tired or sick of the business in the business 
it's maybe a family member, right? So maybe a spouse or a child gets ill and you need to take care of a family member. So that takes you out of the business. So maybe you're completely healthy. You didn't have any plans to retire, sell the business, but somebody in your family has something that needs you taking you out of the business. So, so starting early, making sure you're ready to exit, whether you're ready or not today. So, but start thinking about it today. Get ready to get ready. I guess is the point. Excellent. Audience can reach out to you at crossingthegoalpartners.com. They can, where else, connect with you on LinkedIn or if you want to give out your email address or any other place where they can learn more about what you're doing and who you help. Yeah, LinkedIn is a great place. I'm on LinkedIn often, posting on LinkedIn. I'm connecting with people on LinkedIn, so that's a good place. But my email address is markm at crossingthegoalpartners.com. Or you can just go to my website and there's a contact form there. You can fill out the contact form. Excellent. And if you find this valuable, helpful, insightful, go ahead and subscribe, rate the show, subscribe on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple iTunes. And we'll catch you next time here on the Dave Kittle Show. Thank you. Hey, it's Dave Kittle. Are you a healthcare business owner or physical therapy practice owner who is looking to figure out your succession plan or exit strategy? We might be able to help. And in fact, we may be interested in acquiring your practice. If you're interested, you can reach out to me. Shoot me an email at dave at conciergepainrelief.com. That's D-A-V-E at C-O-N-C-I-E-R-G-E, painrelief.com. Or you can call me at any time, 646-781-8884.